What disease will affect one-third of all adults in their lifetime and cause chronic pain in up to 20% of those affected? That disease is herpes zoster. After causing a common childhood illness, chickenpox, the varicella zoster virus can lay dormant for years, often decades. When reactivated, the virus causes another common condition, shingles, characterized by a painful vesicular rash. Once thought to be an inconvenient but harmless condition, complicated infections with varicella zoster virus can be permanently disabling or even lethal. Today, our patient has dermatomal herpes zoster, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Hell's Fire, an approach to herpes zoster. Time for a minute physiology. The varicella zoster virus is an enveloped, double-stranded DNA herpes virus, often referred to by the acronym VZV. A useful piece of information for your IM toolkit is that all herpes viruses, such as herpes simplex virus and cytomegalovirus, have the ability to develop latency, establishing their genetic material in their cell types of choice. If you have time to do some reading, find out which cells the different herpes viruses establish latency in, and some of the reasons they might reactivate. But back to VZV. This is the virus that leads to two related but distinct clinical diseases, primary varicella and herpes zoster, otherwise known as chickenpox and shingles. Varicella, chickenpox, or that nasty, itchy rash you may have had as a child, is the disease that results from acute primary infection with the varicella zoster virus. The illness is characterized by a diffuse rash and febrile illness. Although more common in childhood, varicella can occur in adults who have not been previously exposed to VZV and is associated with more adverse outcomes. VZV is typically transmitted via inhalation of airborne viral particles that initially propagate in the mucosa of the upper respiratory tract. VZV will then infect T cells that transport the virus throughout the body, causing viremia and depositing the virus at the skin. Here, it ultimately forms the classic vesicular rash associated with chickenpox after an incubation period of 10 to 21 days. Following the acute illness, the VZV virus establishes latency meaning it goes to hide out in the nuclei of neuronal cells. The latent period can last for decades or lifelong. We think that VZV travels to the dorsal root or cranial nerve ganglion by one of two ways. One, retrograde movement of the cell-free virus from the cutaneous rash up the sensory axons to the ganglion, or by direct inoculation of the ganglion by VZV-infected immune cells circulating in the peripheral blood during viremia. Many decades later, herpes zoster, or shingles, is caused by a reactivation of dormant VZV in the dorsal root ganglia or cranial nerve ganglia. The virus typically reactivates during times of decreased cell-mediated immunity, such as with increasing age or immunosuppressive conditions, and causes herpes zoster. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. So what should you be looking for? The most common presentation of herpes zoster is acute neuritis and vesicular rash. Both the rash and the pain will be present in a dermatomal pattern that corresponds to the ganglia in which the virus has reactivated. Your patient may describe pain that is burning or stabbing. This is caused by the acute inflammation of the sensory ganglia and can be severe. The typical herpes zoster rash begins as an erythematous papules, which develop into grouped vesicles. Within 7-10 to 10 days, the vesicles crust over, at which time they are no longer infectious. 
Systemic symptoms are uncommon, and less than 20% of your patients with uncomplicated herpes zoster will experience other symptoms such as headache, fever, fatigue, and malaise. It is important to note that the acute neuritis and pain often precedes the appearance of the rash by several days. During this period, patients may be misdiagnosed with other conditions depending on the location of the involved dermatome. So even if your patient has a previous cause of their pain diagnosed, such as renal colic if they are having flank pain, it is important to reconsider if an overlying rash develops later. On an inpatient internal medicine ward, the scenario will often play out something like this. You have a patient who is admitted for community-acquired pneumonia, and the nurse calls to notify you that they have noticed a rash on the patient's back. The rash is painful and erythematous, and there are some bumps that look like small blisters. How do you approach this patient? As always, your first priority in any patient encounter is safety. Is your patient stable? What's their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? Patients with uncomplicated herpes zoster may be uncomfortable, but should not be hemodynamically unstable. Patients with a history of pain and rash consistent with herpes zoster who are unstable should be appropriately resuscitated and investigated for disseminated zoster, as well as other causes of systemic illness. When there is a clinical suspicion of herpes zoster, appropriate infection control measures must also be taken. This is where assistance from your infection control team can come in handy. For localized herpes zoster, contact precautions are sufficient for direct patient contact or contact with environmental services. Airborne and contact precautions are required for patients with primary varicella or disseminated herpes zoster. Informing your infection control team when there is suspicion of VZV infection is essential to protect all members of your healthcare team. Healthcare workers who are not varicella immune should avoid caring for these patients. This is particularly important for non-immune pregnant healthcare workers, as primary varicella infection in pregnancy can cause congenital abnormalities. Now that you've made sure your patient is stable and taken appropriate infection control measures, time to sort out the problem. On history, clarify the time of onset of the pain and rash. Immunocompromised patients are at risk for dissemination of VZV, and care should be taken to review both past medical history and medications for any factors that could cause immunosuppression. Patients at particular risk include patients with hematologic malignancies, transplant recipients, patients on immunosuppressive medications including steroids, and patients with HIV. History of previous episodes of herpes zoster should also be elicited, along with varicella infection history and vaccination history for both varicella and herpes zoster. In your review of systems, it is important to determine if there is concern for complications of herpes zoster. Does your patient have signs or symptoms concerning for meningitis or encephalitis? Symptoms such as severe headache, meningismus, or change in level of consciousness should raise concern for VZV encephalitis or meningitis, particularly in an unwell patient. If the dermatomal rash is affecting the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve, or V1 distribution around the eye and forehead, you should ask about ocular symptoms, such as eye pain or vision loss, which may be suggestive of uveitis or keratopathy. What should you be looking for on physical examination? Typically, you will see a rash present in a dermatomal pattern with either erythematous papules, vesicles, or crusted lesions depending on the stage of the illness. The rash should be examined for any signs of secondary bacterial infection. The distribution of the rash is important, as a diffuse rash involving multiple dermatomes, particularly on both sides of the body, is concerning for disseminated zoster. A neurological examination, including cranial nerve examination and visual acuity should be performed, 
particularly if the rash is present on the face or is diffuse. Do you remember Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, a medical trivia favorite? As you may remember, this syndrome results from reactivation of VZV in the eighth cranial nerve. The patient will present with a triad of ipsilateral ear pain, facial paralysis, and vesicles on the auricle of the ear or in the auditory canal. Lastly, an uncommon but serious post-infection complication of VZV reactivation or infection is VZV vasculopathy. Now you may be asking, what is VZV vasculopathy? This condition is uncommon but serious and worth noting as many physicians may not be aware of it. VZV vasculopathy is caused by viral infection of arteries, leading to damage of the vessels. Most concerning is intracerebral vasculopathy, which can damage the small and large arteries in the brain, causing neurologic symptoms, stroke, or even death. VZV vasculopathy can occur in both children and adults after both primary varicella or shingles. Patients present with a wide variety of neurological symptoms, including acute neurological deficits such as hemiplegia or vision loss, headache, and altered mental status. Vasculopathy can develop weeks to months after infection, so it is important to elicit any history of recent rash or illness in these patients, as the rash is often not present at the time of presentation. Now let's talk about the workup. For immunocompetent patients who are systemically well, uncomplicated herpes zoster is a clinical diagnosis. Laboratory confirmation of VZV is not required, but may be helpful if lesions are atypical or there is a history of recurrent episodes. The test of choice for VZV diagnosis is polymerase chain reaction, or PCR assays, and unroofed lesions can be swabbed for PCR testing at any stage of disease. Herpes simplex virus can present with similar rash and may be difficult to differentiate from VZV in areas of the body where either infection is common, such as on the buttock or face. In these situations, PCR testing for both VZV and HSV may be done to clarify diagnosis and guide treatment of recurrent episodes. Real-time PCR assays for VZV and HSV have high sensitivities and specificities nearing to 98 to 100% with appropriate collection technique, and so the result of these tests is very reliable in differentiating and diagnosing HSV and VZV. Bacterial swabs may also be performed if the diagnosis is unclear or there is concern that the skin lesions represent a primary or secondary bacterial infection. What about patients who are unwell, immunocompromised, or presenting with neurological symptoms? A lumbar puncture should be performed for all patients with clinical concern for meningitis or encephalitis, and CSF should be sent for standard testing, including cell count and differential, protein, pH, glucose, gram stain, and culture. PCR for virus detection, including VZV, can be performed on cerebral spinal fluid and should be requested when there is suspicion of viral meningitis or encephalitis. If you're concerned about intracerebral VZV vasculopathy, workup should include brain MRI and lumbar puncture. Abnormalities are almost always present on neuroimaging, and diagnosis is confirmed by CSF analysis for VZV PCR and IgG antibodies. What about serology? VZV serology is rarely useful in an episode of acute zoster. It is instead used to document a patient's immune status following illness or vaccination. Sometimes, an episode of herpes zoster can be a sign of an underlying systemic illness causing immunosuppression. For young patients, patients with HIV risk factors, or patients with recurrent episodes of herpes zoster, screening tests for immunosuppressive conditions including HIV serology should be considered.
Now that we know or suspect our patient has herpes zoster, what do we do? The choice of treatment for herpes zoster, or shingles, reflects the underlying immune status of the affected patient and whether there is concern for neurologic, including ocular, complications. For uncomplicated herpes zoster in an immunocompetent patient, treatment goals are to reduce the duration of the infection and herpetic neuralgia. If your patient presents within 72 hours or less of symptom onset, oral antiviral therapy is recommended. Treatment duration is 7 days, and options include valacyclovir, 1,000 mg TID, famacyclovir, 500 mg TID, and acyclovir, 800 mg 5 times per day. A helpful tip to note about valacyclovir dosing is that it is higher than typical treatment doses of herpes labialis caused by HSV, and dose adjustment may be needed for patients with renal dysfunction. If it has been more than 72 hours since symptom onset and new lesions are still appearing, antiviral therapy can be beneficial to reduce ongoing viral replication. If symptoms have been ongoing for more than 72 hours, and particularly if lesions have crusted over, antiviral therapy has minimal benefit in immunocompetent patients. What about immunosuppressed patients? Immunosuppressed patients with herpes zoster should always receive antiviral treatment, regardless of duration of symptoms at the time of presentation. For patients with severe immunosuppression or concern for the development of disseminated zoster, treatment should be in hospital using intravenous antiviral medication. Complicated herpes zoster has different treatment approaches depending on the syndrome. Ophthalmic complications, including herpes zoster ophthalmicus, should always be treated with either high-dose oral or IV antivirals and you should call your ophthalmology colleagues for an urgent consult. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is treated with oral or intravenous antivirals in conjunction with a five-day course of steroids. When there is suspicion for neurological complications of VZV infection, treatment should always include intravenous acyclovir. What about post-zoster? Well, there are a couple things we should go over. Most people know that the most common post-infection complication of herpes zoster is post-herpetic neuralgia. It occurs in up to 20% of patients, which is a lot when you think about one in three people developing shingles over their lifetime. Post-herpetic neuralgia is characterized by neuropathic pain in the distribution of a previous herpes zoster episode, persisting beyond four months from the initial onset of the rash. Four months of shooting electric pain. Peripheral and central neurons are damaged by the inflammatory response during VZV reactivation and subsequently become dysfunctional transmitting inaccurate messages of pain to the brain. Why should you care if the patient has already left the hospital? Prolonged, severe pain from post-herpetic neuralgia can be very debilitating for patients. So how can we avoid VZV infections complications? The best way to prevent complications from VZV is to prevent infection in the first place. Varicella vaccination programs for children were introduced in Canada in the early 2000s to prevent primary varicella infection which in turn reduces the risk of shingles for vaccinated individuals throughout their lifetime. There are also two vaccines available in Canada for the prevention of shingles itself, Zostavax, a live attenuated vaccine, and Shingrex, a recombinant subunit vaccine. Shingrex is now the preferred option and recommended in anyone over the age of 50, as it is more effective in preventing shingles and reduces the risk of post-herpetic neuralgia. A tip to warn patients, the recombinant subunit vaccine, Shingrex, is immunogenic, and some people describe fevers, myalgias, and fatigue after their second dose, kind of like the mRNA COVID vaccines. Funding programs for these vaccinations varies between provinces, 
so it is important to be aware of your local recommendations and services to best serve your patients. Let's finish with our medicine minute. Did you know the common word for the disease shingles has a much more fitting name in Norway? There, shingles is referred to as helvetisild, the literal translation, hell's fire. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Hell's Fire, an approach to herpes zoster. This episode is written by Dr. Lauren Winquist, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Megan Devlin, infectious disease specialist, and Dr. Rasha Abdul-Karim, general internist. This episode is recorded and produced by Leah Karyanopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Zara Morali and Leah Karyanopoulos. The music by Lakshman was at the moment. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.